Tonight on Bomb Squad Movie Night, we're discussing the historical epic starring Killian Murphy, where one man is pushed to the brink of insanity in the midst of a devastating world war. Here he learns the horrifying price you eventually pay for boundless ambition with reckless disregard for the consequences. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about the hit BBC television series, Peaky Blinders. <laughs> Who the fuck are you? Who the fuck am I? Who the fuck is this? Who are you? If I pull that off, will you die? It would be extremely painful. You're a big guy. For you. I am just now being told that we're discussing the other historical epic where Killian Murphy <laughs> plays a genius who brings about a legacy of death and destruction. Christopher Nolan's latest summer blockbuster biopic, Oppenheimer. I'm your host, grandson of a history teacher, Austin Zwiebelman, and tonight I'll be talking film with these fine gentlemen. Uh, you're the host until someone builds a bigger bomb. Hi, I'm Tanner Richard Kraft. Until somebody builds a bigger bomb. I'm Jay Henry Vrenick. I am become film editor, fixer in post. I'm Edward Teller watching George Lopez at 3 in the morning. Oppenheimer tells the story of the titular Julius Robert Oppenheimer, from his time at Cambridge in 1926 all the way to his visit to the White House in 1963, focusing mainly on his time in the early 1940s as director of the Manhattan Project and his controversial security hearing brought on by famous vindictive shithead Louis Strauss. Truman needs to know what's next. Two. What's next? One. But before we tackle this three-hour, critically acclaimed cinematic event, we're going to talk about this film's big-name director, Christopher Edward Nolan. This particular warm-up question tonight is, what is your favorite Christopher Nolan film? In the event that it is Oppenheimer, save that reveal for later and tell us your number two. We're going to start off with Tanner. So, my favorite Christopher Nolan film is actually one of his newer ones. I expect we're going to hear a lot of The Dark Knight or Inception in here. I'm going to go maybe ever so slightly against the grain here and say Dunkirk, his uh, 2017 war movie. There's a lot of big spectacle there, but in terms of plot, it's one of his more understated movies. It's one of his more straightforward movies once you get your head around the whole differing time span things. Mm -hmm. That took me two watches to actually wrap my head around what he was doing there, but once you do, it's actually pretty easy to follow. And actually a really cool narrative device. The editing there is spectacular. The sound is design is spectacular and it's a war film in the most like purest and rawest sense because uh, war sucks and it's terrifying I hate following these guys and then seeing like every time they almost get off the fucking beach the worst possible thing happens to them like when they're all eating food on the bottom of the boat and then it starts sinking like come on man catch a break Right. Um, I gotta go with Dunkirk because it's just his most spectacular use of his style what do you see? That was, might have been some accidental foreshadowing. <laughs> Ooh! Alright, thank you very much, Tanner. And now we're on to Tim. So I think it's fair to say that the movie that really made Christopher Nolan a household name is The Dark Knight, right? Mm -hmm. Well, right before The Dark Knight, he made a movie called The Motherfucking Prestige, baby! Oh! That's what I'm going with on this one. The elevator pitch, Batman and Wolverine fight each other with magic. I'm already sold. <laughs> Beyond that, it's just a really great film about two people going at it in this rivalry. There's just incredible cinematography, incredible lighting. It's a great story and it's one of his shorter movies it's just under two hours it's very well paced and it's just a great time what happened robert thank you just a rubber ball you had a new trick it was the greatest magic trick i've ever seen 
watch it. It's one of his more underrated films, I think. Back to you, Austin. Thank you, Tim. That movie is one hell of a hat trick. And now we're moving on to Bennett Safdie with the sunscreen. Who is uh, Christopher Nolan again? Your father. He's a fucking guy. I didn't know he directed this movie, so I wasn't... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm a basic bitch, and I think Dark Knight is uh, absolutely one of the greatest movies ever made, so... Yeah, I don't really have to explain that one, just Dark Knight. You see, this is how crazy Batman's made Gotham. So what? Fuck you, Grandma! Good pick! Rock and roll McDonald's. And we're moving on to Joe Vrenick looking fine over there in that suit. I pick... Well, one of them I already did a podcast episode on. It's called The Dark Fucking Night. If you want to hear my thoughts on that, go watch that. So I'm just going to take this time to talk about Inception. If there are two fucking movies that came out at the right possible time for me specifically, The Dark Knight came out at the perfect time for me because I was about to turn 13, and that's the perfect movie to watch when you're about to turn 13. And Inception came out when I was 14, about to turn 15, just starting up high school. And as someone who really did a lot of self-discovery in the year 2010, and as someone who wanted to later become a filmmaker this was one of those movies that definitely made me want to be a filmmaker I really like Tanner's answer of Dunkirk. However, I will say if Inception and the Dark Knight had not come out, I think that would be a little bit higher on my list. But I'm just going to say the power of seeing something that really impacted you as a teenager is really fucking strong. So Inception is my pick. Back to you, Austin. Inception will always hold a special place in my heart. I remember seeing those trailers with the city folding and thinking cinema will never be the same again. As I alluded to in our spectacular episode on Horace Prince of the Sun, I'm still mostly of the opinion that Christopher Nolan has one movie that towers above the rest. He has dominated the landscape of big-budget Hollywood cinema several times, probably inspiring many young people to pursue careers in film with his easily accessible mindfuck movies like Inception, Interstellar, hell, even The Prestige. But the biggest splash I've ever seen Nolan make in the canon of film history and commerce was his 2008 film, The Dark Knight! It's alright, listen. Somebody won't Still regarded today by many as the best superhero movie ever made, the Hollywood film that inspired other directors to shoot their narrative features on IMAX cameras, the first superhero movie to gross over $1 billion, spawning the most beloved instance of one of fiction's most iconic characters to Oscar-winning acclaim, Heath Ledger's now-immortal portrayal of the Joker, The Dark Knight, in my opinion, is Nolan's tightest film, the best screenplays ever worked with, featuring iconic action set pieces that still knock people's socks off 15 years later. For more thoughts on The Dark Knight, go check out Bomb Squad Movie Night, episode 126, where we drill into that movie and reveal all of its genius production secrets. But that concludes our warm-up question. Now it's time for the main subject of today's show. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Those are rookie numbers in this racket. 
based on the 2005 book American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, Oppenheimer is a tense biopic thriller that tells the story of a genius physicist who gave us a weapon so powerful that it could someday kill every person on the planet in a hellish storm of poisonous fire. Tell me, gentlemen, what did you think of Oppenheimer? We're going to start off with Joe. Oh boy, uh, so this movie is incredible and incredibly depressing. So depressing that after I watched it, I looked at a mirror in the movie theater restroom and said, I need to go hug my cat and touch some grass because life is short and could be taken away from me in an instant. Until somebody builds a bigger one. Like a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies, it left a strong impact on me. One of the things that I especially liked about this one is something that kind of is a a particular theme with Christopher Nolan's movies is the use of time and the ticking clock elements of storytelling. This is a national emergency. In some instances for his movies, he uses it a bit more literally, but I think here it's probably done at its most perfect because it's literally a race against the clock, this movie. Mm -hmm. I could probably talk a lot about the look of this, the performances, the costume design, the special effects, but a lot of these praises have been just sung to death by this point, and the movie's only been out for, what, like two weeks now? Mm-hmm. But I'm going to uh, pass it off to whoever wants to talk about it next. Thank you, Joe. Glad you loved the movie. We're going to move on to motherfucking Bennett. Bennett, what did you think of Oppenheimer? I thought this movie was absolutely insane that Christopher Nolan actually committed a war crime and dropped an actual <laughs> atomic bomb because <laughs> fuck CGI. Fuck him. We'll, we'll do, do it live. live. This man said round two for my movie and uh, yeah, just that alone makes me the greatest director of all time. Until somebody builds a bigger one. I also thought it was crazy that he brought Albert Einstein back from the dead <laughs> to cast his movie. He only had like two lines. It'll ignite the atmosphere. That was the second best part of the movie. I think we all know what the best part of the movie was. Sex scene. Damn it, Tanner. Can you let me build up? <laughs> that, that alone was worth going to see in the movie for, but um, I've never heard better sound mixing in a movie other than this. Like, after I saw this movie, everybody who was like, I gotta see it in IMAX, I gotta see it in IMAX. I was like, yeah, like, like IMAX is cool, but like, make sure you go and see it somewhere that has good-ass sound, because <laughs> this movie's sound mixing was insane. The part where the atomic bomb goes off, and it's just dead silent, and all you hear is like the people breathing, that was like <laughs> master, masterpiece. And then when the fucking sound finally hits and everybody shits their pants in the theater, Christopher Nolan topped here. Still can't believe he nuked mm-hmm. people for this movie. It's He tops it again. So fucked up, he actually killed Florence Pugh in this. This man really got permission to murder hundreds of thousands of people so he could avoid CGI. That's just how good this movie was. All right, on to the next person. Let's go recruit some scientists. We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Speaking of the sound mixing for a second, I was talking to Tanner yesterday about how the scene where they're all cheering from him and he can hear everyone's movements, but not their cheering, reminded me of those people who did Foley over music videos, where you can hear sort of people's like feet scuffing around while they dance, but you can't hear the song. It sort of reminded me of that. Up next, we're gonna go to Tim. What did you think of Oppenheimer? Movie good. Yeah! I fucking love movie good! 
Yeah, it's it's a real good movie. I think it's definitely a step forward for Nolan. I don't necessarily think it's his best film, in my opinion. Like, it's up there, for sure. But it's definitely something that feels very Nolan, but it also feels like something new. You're the great improviser, but this you can't do in your head. Because, I mean, it's, it's his first stab at a biopic, unless you count Dunkirk. But it's very good. There's, to kind of piggyback on what Bennett was talking about with the sound design, one thing that I that really struck me, like, fairly early on was every time you would see an explosion, you'd have the delayed sound, which mm-hmm. is something that I immediately thought was very cool, because, like, you never have that in movies. You always see, like, you see the lightning and hear the thunder at the same time, which is not realistic. And same thing with bombs, but, like, this one, they did the realistic delay and so then that even plays into when they're doing the trinity test and you're just waiting for that sound to hit you and then it finally does and it's loud as shit which was great and then what Austin was alluding to the sound mixing with the scene of the speech where everybody's cheering he manages to pull off this thing where the one thing that's scarier than the bomb is the people's reaction to the bomb, which is thunderous applause. So this is how Liberty dies. With thunderous applause. To to do a prequel meme there. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's a great movie. It paints the character very well. Like there's so much you could read about what he's doing with this. I'm gonna pass it off. Back to you, Austin. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tim. Wise words. Now, on to the person in this chat who might have felt the best about the movie, me. No, Tanner Richard <laughs> fucking Kraft. All right, let's do this. Let's fucking do this. I'm going to say it. It's what ignites the atmosphere. Oppenheimer is my new favorite Christopher Nolan movie. For a myriad of reasons, I think it it's emblematic of his entire style, while also featuring, I think, the most humanity he's had in a movie in a while. And a lot of this really just comes down to the amazing performances he gets out of all of his actors. That's happening, isn't it? Killian Murphy is obviously the star of the show here, and he is spectacular in every scene he's in. He's damn near in every scene. I don't think there's a guy that has a better I want to die stare in Hollywood right now. <laughs> the guy's got the sauce. But I got the sauce. I got this rap shit. But like beyond him, every actor in this movie gets at least one line, if not one entire scene they get to totally own and steal. No one does this cool thing. I've heard some people actually complain about the fact that it feels like every guy in this movie is a famous face and it's like distracting. Uh, I think that's actually an interesting visual thing Nolan's doing because Nolan didn't want to make any composite characters. So in order to make all these random characters you only see twice memorable, you cast Academy Award winner Rami Malek in the role. All right. You cast Josh Peck from Drake and Josh. You cast Josh Hartnett. You cast all these famous actors. So because you know these actors, you know these faces. So when you see them, you'll remember them. That is smart. That It's an interesting trick Nolan pulls, and every single one of them gets to steal a scene. We're in a race against the Nazis. The world's most superb runner makes the others look as if they're walking. Obviously, the two standouts are Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. Those are the two getting all the buzz right now, but everyone gets at least one scene to dominate in. Josh Peck delivers the fuck out of Detonators Charged. Alden Ehrenreich near the end where he's like, maybe they were talking about something more important than you. 
the guy from Sky High is in this movie and he's pretty cool. Jack Quaid is in this movie and if you look up photos of the guy Jack Quaid plays it, you could have told me it was a photo of Jack Quaid and I would believe you. Emily Blunt in that interrogation scene near the end where she's just like 16, sorry, 17, sorry, 18. 18. Love that. Mm -hmm. The whole movie's like building up to that and it fucking rocks. Matt Damon, as Christopher Nolan talks about it, has all those trailer lines, which I really love, (laughs) you know, like, you know, if we press that button or my personal favorite, which in the trailer was, how about this is the most important thing to happen in the history of the world? But in the movie, it's much funnier because how about this is the most important fucking thing to ever happen in the history of the world? He puts great emphasis on the fucking, which was great. Uh, I didn't think sound design was going to get better than John Wick Chapter 4 this year. Oppenheimer managed to outclass it, in my opinion. The sound design is incredible. But in speaking of sound, I want to shout out Ludwig Gohansson and his incredible score. All I had that I gave Ludwig was the idea of basing the score on the violin. Hans Zimmer declining to do Tenet because he was busy doing Dune is maybe the best thing to ever happen in the history of the world. I like Zimmer. I like his work. I think Oanson and Nolan are operating at a level far beyond what Zimmer and Nolan has ever achieved aside from The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight score is incredible, but I don't think Zimmer ever got that good. Until somebody builds a bigger one. Ludwig Goanza between this and Tenet, two incredible scores. And this movie is fairly funny at times, despite its subject matter. I'm not a soldier, Oppie. A soldier? He's a general. I've got all the soldier I need. What can I tell them? As much as you like until you feel my boot on your balls. This movie is fucking gorgeous. It is stunning to look at. And let me tell you, I was lucky enough to see it in IMAX both times. The first time, I saw it in LIMAX over at Ronnie's, which is the 1.9 by 1 aspect ratio screen. Yesterday, Austin and I got to see it at the Omnimax Theater, which meant we got to see those scenes projected in full 1.43 by 1. And let me tell you, I feel bad for anyone who saw the Trinity test scene just in that cropped aspect ratio, because that scene does not hit unless you see the full explosion, which is fucking nuts. What they were able to accomplish there completely practically is remarkable credit to their pyrotechnics team and everyone on that team and then finally the last thing i want to say is that this movie like joe was saying is depressing that (laughs) final scene between oppie and albert where oppie's all like you remember those calculations and albert's like i remember them well why and oppie's like i think we did destroy the world and then it's just that montage of the world on fire of missiles going off and both times i was like fuck me man we're all gonna die the first time i did it it was part of a barbenheimer double feature so for like the hour after oppenheimer i kept being like how the fuck am i supposed to watch barbie after that why don't you have a nobel prize why aren't you a general? They're making me one for this. There was something on Twitter where somebody was saying something like, does Oppenheimer have a post credit scene? And somebody just replied, we're living it, buddy. <laughs> uh, it's terrifying. Uh, that's all I have to say for now. There's a couple of things I want to bring up a general discussion. So back to you, Austin. Thank you very much, Tanner. And now I'm going to deflate all the air out of the balloon. Uh, I think the ending of Dr. Strangelove is much more effective than the ending of Oppenheimer. (laughs) Come fight me. Fuck you! In preparation for this episode, I saw the movie twice. Once in standard 70mm film with my beloved husband, and the second time in dual laser IMAX thanks to the generosity of my good friend Tanner Richard Kraft. 
and the saint-like patience of Ethan Hawker. In addition to this, I have read part one of the five-part book American Prometheus. That's the section covering Oppenheimer's childhood and young adulthood, right about up to his political awakening upon courting Gene Tatlock, played in the film by Florence Pugh. The biggest draw of this film for me after I saw the trailers was the idea of Christopher Nolan, a director who hires really great production designers and does like Kubrick level amounts of research, recreating the much mythologized Manhattan Project. That specific research and development undertaking always struck me as highly classified, shrouded in secrecy, and utterly fucking fascinating from both a technical and logistic standpoint. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. Until somebody builds a bigger one. Of course, the concept of them recreating the Trinity Explosion in 15 perf 65mm film using practical photography was like the cherry on top, but giving audiences a detailed cinematic look into the Los Alamos Laboratory was very exciting all by itself. And I think most people who see this film will feel properly validated for buying their ticket during that portion of the film, especially during the sequence depicting the days leading up to the Trinity test, which is most definitely obvious. Oppenheimer's crown jewel is a summer blockbuster event. Beyond that, there's the rest of the film, which exists to sort of shed light on Oppenheimer's character as a man and the drama precipitated by his public humiliation at the hands of Louis Straws. Truman needs to know what's next. Two. What's next? One. A bomb factory. On to some criticisms. I would imagine for your average American in 2023, this film seems cerebral, haunting, probably very dense, and maybe even confusing. Uh, because I think the bar for understanding this time in history was set low for a very malicious reason. By schools, not Nolan. This film touches on complicated topics that defined intellectual and political events during the early 20th century, such as communism, imperialism, anti-Semitism, and fascism, but everything's been kind of dumbed down significantly in order to give us J. Robert Oppenheimer, the tortured cool guy whose story is digestible for your average moviegoer, even moviegoers whose political views are the reason this dude lost everything back in the day. I would be a schmuck to pick apart the differences between this movie and the book. Nolan was lucky to get three hours to tell this story in the first place, but there's things that the characters don't question that disturb me. This is a film about the brightest scientific minds of the 1900s, men who were often Jewish and left-wing, and there's not a single interrogation of why the U.S. would immediately launch into a Cold War with the Soviet Union. For the record, that was a purely ideological conflict because unthinkably rich people run the U.S. and could not let communism threaten their rigged system. And the scientists were often keenly aware of this. That nuclear annihilation became the threat it was during the Cold War because rich, powerful people would rather keep us on the brink of total destruction than allow capitalism and communism to compete in the global marketplace of ideas. And that is just the start of how I think this film fumbles the bag, depicting the actual political forces that moved around J. Robert Oppenheimer and his famous bomb. And before people cry that I'm asking for this film to be left-wing 
inaccurate propaganda, the sad truth is that these are the facts of how modern history was shaped, and these great men were smart enough to know that, especially famous socialist Albert fucking Einstein. To wrap up my heavily curtailed short-form review, Christopher Nolan is, at the end of the day, a technician, much more than he is a great philosopher or a political mind. And as a technician, who wanted to not so much lay bare this evil turning point in history for exactly what it was, but instead frame it through the lens of a brilliant, complicated man who triumphed over those who sought to destroy him because of his endurance and respect for his technical achievements, I think Nolan succeeded. As a movie made for mass audiences, I'm sure this will leave plenty of people in awe of its grandeur, but the most this movie has in common with the intellectuals and powerful men of that time is the fact that it so often discusses quantum physics. Beyond that, it leaves many important topics hung out to dry, just like Katherine Oppenheimer's sheets. And that concludes our general reviews of Oppenheimer. Stay tuned after the break for when we get into general discussion and maybe some trivia. Before the break, here's some footage of Joe Vrenick working at a movie theater on Barbenheimer weekend. They both let me leave. I won't let you leave. Welcome back to Bomb Squad Movie Night, episode number 128. Now for some words from our sponsors. Do you want a hip-looking art piece that reflects the unique color palette of your favorite films? Go to moviepalette.com. They have a wide selection of films to pick from, and you can get a palette custom made for a small additional charge. Use the code SQUAD15 at checkout to get 15% off your order. It's a scary time in the film industry. Rich, fat cat producers are treating everybody like shit and hoarding all the profits like that dragon from the Hobbit movies. Some unions are on strike, but this is a war of attrition, and they need your help to ultimately stop these greedy shitbags. Consider donating to the Entertainment Community Fund, the Snack List, or Groceries for Writers. Help us make a better future for everybody, not just the fucking CEOs. Donate today. And now back to the show. Let's get into general discussion. Actually, if I may for a moment, before we get into general discussion, I want to bring up one quick thing here real quick. Uh, earlier today was the uh, St. Louis Filmmaker Showcase Awards Ceremony, and I just want to make sure uh, we have a public shout-out to Mr. Austin Zwiebelman here, who won Best Visual Effects. Uh, if everyone could please just give him a round of applause. Uh, beyond uh, being uh, one of my closest collaborators here creatively, Austin spends a lot of fucking time every week editing this amazing show, and uh, this show would be nothing without him. So if we could all, again, just give him a round of applause and thank him for everything he does, both the effects-wise, editing-wise, uh, Bomb Squad would not be what it is without you, Austin. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I couldn't do it without you either. It's a group effort. And now back to the show! Let's get into general discussion. Does anybody have any bombs they'd like to drop that they didn't get to cover in their round table review. Yes! This movie is about Christopher Nolan regretting making The Dark Knight. What? Hear me out. This is more of a subtextual reading than I think an actual intended reading that Nolan pushed forth. Oppenheimer did this great feat, this amazing feat that nobody thought could be done. He made the atomic bomb. Christopher Nolan made a superhero movie that both comic book fans and movie lovers, like cinephile types, both love and respected. Both catapulted them into the stratosphere, and a lot of people would think that The Dark Knight set us down a road that doomed films by for being forever dominated by nothing but superhero movies, which I think is an overly cynical take, but also a valid one. And a lot of this is tied together by the fact that who's the guy that shits on Oppie this whole movie? Strauss. Who plays Strauss? 
Iron Man. Iron Man plays the guy that's trying to take Oppie down. I think there's a valid reading there. I just wanted to throw that out. What do you guys think of that? That is your second week in a row you've punched my brain in the face. (laughs) I think there's something there. You know, I need to follow in Chris Nolan's footsteps and make a movie about how I regret making Double Bill, but that's just me. (laughs) So, uh, can we all agree that this is probably going to be the start of the heartening? Josh Hartnett, I I didn't mention him in my uh, review of it, but he fucking rules in this. Yes! Uh, if that's what he wants, I'm pretty sure he stepped away from Hollywood. He, he did. He's been wanting to come back. He was almost Loki, and he was also almost Thor. Wasn't he also almost Batman? Funnily enough, I think it was for Batman Begins that he auditioned. Yeah, I think he was one of the, 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 the like, he was on the short list for Begins. It was him, Bale, and some third guy who I can't remember. It might have been Killian Murphy, because he also auditioned yeah, as Batman. Yeah, I know he screen-tested. Uh, like, there's footage of him in the Batman costume. But yeah, no, I, I hope that the heartening happens. This is probably the most successful Hartnet film that came out this year. Don't know what happened to that Guy Ritchie movie. It just kind of came and went, though. Uh, but, was that the Operation DeFortune one? Yeah. The one that got delayed for a year because the villains of the movie were Ukrainian mobsters? <laughs> Right. <laughs> it was supposed to come out last year, and then like oh, two weeks before its release date, Russia invades Ukraine, and the distributors were like, all right, we're going to hold off on this one. Speaking of actors coming out of their holes to work with Nolan, there's that story that's getting passed around. I think it was about Matt Damon. Like, Matt Damon was, I think, talking to his wife, and they're in couples therapy, and he's like, all right, I won't do any more acting as long as Christopher Nolan doesn't call. And then, like, less than a week later or something, Christopher Nolan was like, hey, you want to be an Oppenheimer? You know, in this year with the Karen Gillan thing from Guardians of the Galaxy 3. It's one of the funnier couples therapy flukes that has happened. Imagine being his wife. All right, honey, I, I'm going to take a break from acting unless Nolan calls. Oh, good. And then less than a week later, <laughs> Nolan calls. Would you in her shoes be like, you bitch, you bastard, you knew he was going to call. He knew in advance. They knew and they let it happen. All right, uh, favorite character in the movie. Let's go... Albert Einstein, and here's why. He is the comic relief of this movie. The funniest fucking thing in this movie to me is that scene where, like, after Oppenheimer lets someone go into a taxi cab, the taxi cab drives off, Einstein appears from, like, the fucking forest, like a forest nymph, to be like, yo, man, my country fucked me over, too. What are you doing this for, dog? There's, like, visibly a fence behind him. Where did he come from? I think my favorite funny character is RDJ walking slow at the end. In a telephoto lens, he's just slow walking, trying not to get there too early. Tim, who's your favorite character? Off the top of my head, I'm just going to say Rami Malek because it was just so baffling the first time I saw him. Like, why the fuck is Mr. (laughs) Robot just goofing off in the background of this shot? Is that that Freddie Mercury? Uh, Bennett, favorite character in this movie? As you can tell from my photo, it's obviously Josh Peck. No, I'm just kidding. I, I love Benny Safdie. Just, I don't know, every every time I see Benny Safdie in a movie, it just brings me joy. Just because of the absurd characters he can play. But yeah, I just, I really loved him and his, uh, his very badly acted Hungarian accent. It's not very good. Joe, who is your favorite character in Oppenheimer? I mean, it's the titular character, but since we're all picking relatively funny answers, I will say Matt Damon gives the performance of what the fuck are you guys talking about, nerds, in English, please. And that's always kind of funny. My uh, my girlfriend works in, like, cancer research, 
So like big oh, science nerd as well. And whenever I hang out with her and her like science friends, like I feel like Matt Damon felt in this movie where I was like, what the fuck are these words they're using? <laughs> Did you hit him with a, you're telling me there's a chance that when we press that button, we'll give everyone cancer? <laughs> I'm going to start using that now though. But I wanted, I wanted to go to her afterwards and be like, do you see how I feel now when you guys talk about science shit? <laughs> I have an art degree. I'm too stupid for this. All right, so I've only read a fifth of the book, but I have an Oppenheimer fact that is not usually easy to reach on the internet. So when Oppenheimer was at Harvard, he wanted to switch from chemistry to graduate studies in physics so he could skip the baby physics classes and get straight to the difficult shit. He wrote a letter to the administrators featuring a list of 15 books on advanced physics that he had supposedly read. According to a later account of the meeting where the admins actually read the letter, one of the dudes in charge said, Clearly, whoever wrote this letter is a liar and has not read these books, but he should get a PhD just for knowing their titles. I fucking love that. You know what? Another g guy that was in just a scene in this movie, fucking the, the locks breaker guy from Army of the Dead plays Heisenberg in this movie, which is really <laughs> weird because I thought it was going to be Brian Cranston. Say my name. Heisenberg. I'm the cook. He's one of two actors who I had to be like, wait, who the fuck is that guy? Dieter was the first one. The second one was Casey Affleck. Yeah, I didn't know that was Casey Affleck. <laughs> he was too scary. It's like an all-time one-scene heat check. I know Casey Affleck's like a predator or something, uh, but goddamn, he is so fucking terrifying in that one scene. Speaking of one-scene heat checks, if not Albert Einstein teleporting behind a taxi cab, the funniest fucking thing in this movie might be Harry Truman going full. With a hanky. Yeah. Gary Oldman. Get that crab baby out of my office. Yeah, when did fucking Harry Truman turn into Colonel Sanders? Th that's just how Harry Truman acted. The only president from the great state of Missouri, everyone. And he was only president because he was made vice president as a compromise with more moderate Democrats because people were scared that FDR's former vice president was too radical. Apparently people also really hated him. Truman was in the KKK. Oh my God. Okay, well now I know why. Allegedly. Allegedly. Hold on, let me clarify this. He also desegregated the armed forces, so like, mixed bag here. There's gray area in real life, but he was fucking mean to Oppie. If, if I remember correctly, there was actually a very, like, weird reason why he was in the KKK that, like, made him innocent or something? I don't know. In the KKK on a technicality. Whoops amongst us. Once I found out that the KKK wasn't about horses, I lost interest. <laughs> uh, the best unintentional moment of humor in this movie, at least I think it's unintentional, is like, you know, in the trailer and Oppenheimer's like, we have one hope, getting all of America's greatest scientific and engineering minds in one place. And then in the trailer, he's like, we have one hope. And Damon's like, what? And Oppie's like, anti-Semitism. Yeah. And, and Matt Damon's character's like, what? Perfect moment <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> Let him cook. That, that's true, though. The Nazis probably would have beat us to the atomic bomb because Heisenberg probably could have figured it out before anyone else if Heisenberg was given actual proper resources. We should be fucking grateful that he, for some reason, thought quantum physics was Jew magic. Yeah, uh, one thing, because there are a lot of annoying people when you talk about Oppenheimer. He's, you know, a complicated man, but they want to be reductive. They're like, that's a movie about a fucking monster, which he 50% might as well be. But the thing is, you always have to emphasize to people, when Oppenheimer entered the Manhattan Project, the impression was that they were dropping the bomb on Nazis, right? It was a Jewish person trying to drop the atomic bomb on fascists. 
So the whole, you know, yeah. fact that it ultimately became the Japanese later sort of, you know, made everything real muddy. But I think that, like, his intentions going into this were a little more pure, and he just got fucked by circumstance. There's a great line in the movie that demonstrates it perfectly, which is like, I don't know if we should have this bomb, but I know the Nazis shouldn't. Uh, and then throughout the rest of the movie, he spends too much time being a centrist douchebag, alienating everyone, both his country and the former friends. And then by the time he finally starts to argue for proper policy, it's kind of too late. Yeah. You want to hear uh, the first story that made headlines about Oppenheimer being a douche? Get this. The first time Oppenheimer made headlines was the San Francisco Examiner on February 14th, 1934. Uh, he went out on a date with this lady named Melba Phillips, uh, one of his first doctoral students told her that he was going out to get some gas or something, uh, left her in the car, and never came back. So she went to the police and was like, oh shit, Oppenheimer's gone missing. And they quickly found him asleep at his house. Uh, the headline <laughs> in the examiner read, forgetful professor Parks girl takes self home. And uh, that was the first time Oppenheimer ended up in the papers. What a fucking king. So Oppenheimer is the uh, OG of ghosting. <laughs> yeah, he ghosted her ass. So I, was, I saw something, I think, on Twitter about how uh, this movie continues in the tradition of Christopher Nolan working through the 10 Things I Hate About You cast with uh, Heath Ledger, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and now uh, David Krumholtz. I also noticed on my most recent rewatch of Interstellar that he's worked with half of the main cast of Third Rock from the Sun. So now I'm just picturing, what if this movie cast French Stewart as Oppenheimer? I am the come death destroyer of worlds. <laughs> I fucking love that that line is like in a sex scene. And then they reuse the audio later. It's so goofy. She just like walks up and grabs the book and says, say the line, Bart. Say the line, Oppie. I am become death destroyer of worlds. Yay! <laughs> I am become death cut to tits destroyer of worlds. One of the extras during the Trinity success speech was actually Christopher Nolan's daughter. She's the one who gets her face all fucked up by the imaginary bomb. That is Flora, his daughter, named in the credits as Burn Victim. Oh my god, that was his daughter that with the fucked up skin? Yeah, bring your daughter to work day. Gone atomic. Yeah. You know, this actually reminds me of a fun thing with Nolan. You know how a lot of people criticize him for, like, the only way he knows how to write women characters with the, is with the dead wife trope, essentially? Yeah. It's a common criticism, and I think it's a fair criticism. What I find funny about that is uh, in an interview with Nolan once, uh, he actually called himself out on that, but then he also said, yeah, I think it's mostly because I can't think of anything more terrifying than my wife and children dying, which is just, like, kind of sweet. He is the ultimate wife guy. The end of this movie with all the montages, except it's a single shot of, like, just his wife's grave. My wife. All right, and that's all the time we've got today for banter. Let's move on to final thoughts. Uh, let's start off with Tim. Um, this was a great film. I'm definitely glad that I saw it in both 70mm and in IMAX. I think you get something different out of both. I got to see the 70mm screening in the back row center, so I got to hear the projector going, which was really cool. But seeing it in IMAX and getting the full effect of the picture and the sound is a tremendous experience. I wish I got to see it at the Omnimax, but the versions that I saw were very good. Go, go watch it. Go to a screening that's not completely sold out. Back to you, Austin. If you can. And on to Tanner. What are your final thoughts? Uh, this is my new favorite Christopher Nolan movie. It's a stacked cast with every actor given 110%, combined with Nolan's exquisite technical craft and one of the best screenplays of his career. It is, without a doubt, gonna have to be my favorite movie of 2023. 
until Martin Scorsese builds a bigger bomb. Glorious fucking memorable words from Tanner. And on to Joe. If Greta Gerwig owes me serious money for mental health therapy, Christopher Nolan owes me for just chiropractic work because my back hurts, my feet hurt, everything hurts. If you're gonna fucking go to the movies, be nice to the fucking theater staff. Remember, Joe is the proletariat. The Joe-letariat. <laughs> All right, Bennett, what are your final thoughts? My favorite part of seeing this movie was being really mean to the theater staff. <laughs> um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Detonators charged. charged. Um, there was one thing that I wish they would have mentioned in the movie, which is like insignificant to most people, but St. Louis is still being affected by the Manhattan Project. And like, that was a big thing I heard about people when they first saw this, they were mad about, they did talk about the destruction it caused to Japan and everything, but they didn't talk about the effects that like the Trinity Project had on America and like the areas around it itself and all the testing of nuclear devices after that. So yeah, I wish I was seeing that. But other than that, the movie was really solid. It, it didn't try to make Oppenheimer out to be this like amazing hero that he's been kind of like portrayed as for years and it kind of showed the death and destruction that you would think of with an atomic uh, bomb. So the next time you're in St. Louis and you think the drivers are shit, remember they dumped all the nuclear waste here in a creek. My final thoughts. While I still think that Oppenheimer's politics were fatally crippled in order to not offend anti-intellectual moviegoers who have spent their entire lives swimming in right-wing propaganda, uh, considering the modern landscape of movies and politics, this is still three miles above any usual summer hit movie. It is a technical marvel full of excellent fucking performances. Go see it in theaters in the highest fidelity you can manage. It is fucking good. But you know who else is a troubled genius with a complicated sex life? The person watching or listening to this show. If you're listening to us on any of the audio platforms, rate us five stars, leave a review, make a whole Reddit post about how it's a literal war crime that more people don't tune into Bomb Squad Movie Night. Comment below and let us know. What's your favorite Christopher Nolan movie? What do you think of Oppenheimer? Who is Bane? Why does he wear the mask? If you're watching on Spotify video, we hope you enjoyed the uncensored version of today's episode featuring deleted Killian Murphy full frontal nudity scenes from Oppenheimer. If you've got any cash to spare, consider going over to our Patreon and helping the show. These videos take forever to make and I ran out of food several days ago. Be sure to leave us a like so we know how much you like us, leave us a subscribe so we know how much you love us, and hit the bell icon so you'll know when the Barbie video comes out. Tune in next week when we will be discussing Ralph Bakshi's 1973 live-action animated comedy drama, Heavy Traffic, hosted by our very own Ethan Hawker. Considered to be Bakshi's greatest critical success, it's an unforgettable motion picture that's unlike anything you've ever seen. Thank you for tuning in, and before we sign off, one last quote from Oppenheimer. November 16th, 1945. The people of this world must unite, or they will perish. See you later. Bear. Until someone builds a bigger bomb. God damn! Until somebody builds a bigger bomb.